to learn how to die is to learn how to live. To learn how to live is to learn how to act not only in this life, but in the lives to come. To transform yourself truly and learn how to be reborn as a transformed being to help others is really to help the world in the most powerful way of all. Neil and deal. It's time for another episode of Made You Think. Classic quote opening. Classic. Oh, we haven't done that since we crossed 100. That's been, that was the first one. It's, it's also the best when I read the quote because then I get to say Neil and deal. <laughs> Got that lovely little rhyme scheme to it. <laughs> I remember when we, one time we did that and we asked deal if, he liked it and and well you and i were shitting on it you and i were saying it's we don't like it anymore and the deal was like that oh, gets quote, me so yeah. hyped to listen to the episode <laughs> <laughs> the quote yeah it's all hype it's the foreplay for yeah, the episode it's <laughs> true well and it gives us an excuse to go on a tangent for a few minutes afterwards because we've at least started on topic and then we can <laughs> <laughs> so today we're talking about the tibetan book of living and dying by Sogyal Rinpoche. Do you guys get the pronunciation? That's, the, that's exactly what I would have said. Yeah, so. I, I, I had Rinpoche in my head, but I'm, I have no idea what it is. This is great. Now, you recommended this, right? Yes. I, I found it from The Comfort Crisis, mm. which was episode oh. something a while ago, because in the last chapter, the penultimate chapter of Comfort Crisis, he goes to Bhutan. And because he wants to study the people there because they're like some of the happiest people in the world. And he says that one of the reasons they're so happy is because they're so comfortable with death. And he says that mm-hmm. like one of the like core texts that talked about that idea was this one. He mentioned it in the book. I was like, Oh, that sounds interesting. So I uh, picked it up back then, but it had been sitting on my shelf for six months longer. And then, Pulled it off when we were looking for something to do, and here we are. I think none of us rentate regularly anymore, right? I do, as of this year. Oh yeah, you brought it back. Yeah, that, that was that was the other reason I wanted to read it. Okay. Yeah. We tell us about that because you had stopped for a while because you felt like it was making you, I think, less ambitious or less energetic. Yeah, I stopped for a while. I mean, I stopped because I didn't feel like I was getting much benefit from it, mm-hmm. and. I think that was because I didn't know what I was looking for with it. So I, so this year I actually, I started microdosing mushrooms as like uh, somewhere in between anxiety management and productivity, right? Like it, it was, it was serving one or both of those functions. And then at some point while doing that, the, the question popped into my head of whether or not I could reach the same mental state by meditating. And the answer turned out to be yes. Hmm. So it's like, so now I get it, but I'm not sure I would have gotten there or maybe eventually, right? Like obviously people get to the the very deep benefits of meditation without psychedelics. But for me, that helped a lot with kind of like realizing like what I was aiming at exactly. So do you microdose and meditate or do you now meditate as a substitute? I just meditate now. Okay. Yeah. Oh, wow. So it's been a substitute. Yeah. I mean, I I think it's better. Like it's because the, the, the microdosing is a little like uncontrolled, you know, it's Mm -hmm. like a, it's a, it's a rough version. It, It works, but Microdosing is like riding the bus and meditating is driving the car. Mm. 
right? Like they're both forms of transportation with the meditation. You're, you're much more in control. So yeah, it, it, it's been very helpful just life-wise, but the, the specific practice is like that. That's actually been a lot more fluid too. Like every, every time I tried to do it before, it was like headspace of the waking up app and okay, we're going to do, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes every day. Like at this time, and when I started this time, I started with like 10 minutes on waking up and built up to 15 and was like trying to find the best way to incorporate into it into my day. But over time, it's shifted where I'm doing a lot more like other forms of meditation now too. Not just Zazen, not just sitting meditation, but like other active Zen meditations. So like back, like way back when we did way of Zen, Neil, if you remember he talked about how like in a lot of Zen practice, Zazen is not actually a big part of it. The sitting meditation is not a big focus. It's like walking meditations and archery and tea ceremonies and all these other things. And Rinpoche actually talked about this in the book too, that there's a disconnect that happens when you only do eyes closed seated meditation, because in some ways you're training your mind to only be at rest when you've removed the stimuli of the world, which is in some ways the least helpful thing you could be doing, right? Reality is super stimulating. So if you can practice meditating with your eyes open or while walking, or I actually do it a lot driving, like Mm -hmm. I'll very, I, I won't listen to podcasts and audiobooks like two thirds of the time anymore. I'll just like, do basically like a mantra meditation mm. just like while driving and that, that's like a super interesting like quite powerful practice too so it's been finding more things like that that that's worked really really well and resonated with me that's, that's awesome. awesome this book made me want to get back into it which is why i was asking you guys because it sort of gave it a purpose as opposed to this like vaguely aspirational 23 year old thing which is because i did it for an entire year i meditated every day for between 20 minutes to an hour in basically all of 2016, part of 2017. And it was great, but I totally fell off. And when I fell off, there was no pullback. I didn't feel like I lost anything. Yeah. Yeah, I really think, and Rinpoche does a really good job, or I guess we should call him Sogil, because Rinpoche is like the lineage name, right? Mm, I think so. I'm not sure. I, I should probably, anyway, I think he does a really good job of like bringing in the mystical elements for lack of a better term without making them feel too woo i guess for lack of a better term like Mm. for a western audience and i feel like that's part of what a lot of the meditation advice that we popularly get gets wrong where it's kind of like like you can just do this seated meditation focus on your breath for 20 minutes and you'll like be more productive or be less stressed or these other things like to your point, I think it needs a little bit more, right? It needs like a little more of the whole experience to be as effective. If I was going to summarize the book, I would basically summarize it as in the moment of your death, your body and your ego leave you and just what's left is your mind. And that should not be the first time you experience that state of mind. And so the purpose of living is to bring that experience or its approximation into your daily life so that you are essentially rehearsed for death. That is a great, yeah. great overview. Yeah. It's great to put it. Yeah. 
The other thing that was pretty interesting from this, because it ties into the death thing, is that death is just kind of like a middle step in the journey, as opposed to like, I think we've, like the way, you know, I think we've all been kind of brought up, the the thought is like, your life has a beginning, middle and end. And I think in this tradition, the thought is that it's not beginning, middle and end. It's even the beginning is like just another step in the cycle that you've been a part of forever. I also thought some of the stuff around reincarnation was really illuminating because he makes pretty clear like it's not actually this this argument for reincarnation is like very compelling. The idea that I think we're uh, at least at least my impression of reincarnation was like, oh, you die and then your soul kind of goes into another, you know, another being, whether that's a human or some other type of, of creature. And I think in this example, it's a lot more like your energy doesn't die, like you dissipate and you could, you know, it will be reformed in another form, basically. And that's why they were saying like the, I think there was something about a turtle, like sticking its head through some kind of thing on the surface of a lake. And it was saying being like born a human is like 10,000 times less likely than that, which kind of makes sense, right? It's like if your energy, like if we're talking about all the energy in the universe to be like born a human is so, so uh, minute of a possibility. So it's not taking away the like, I think the positive or like the uplifting parts of like take advantage of your life. Like this is like the one life you have, but it also is saying like your pure mind or your pure energy does not, does not die after your body dies. It was interesting. The, the analogy that made the way their tradition thinks about consciousness clear was that of the oil lamp where the flame is continuous, but it's not the same exact like, flame from one second to the next like the flame continues but at each moment it's a different flame but it's also the same flame yeah that's basically what consciousness is i think this was like the most compelling presentation of buddhism yeah like or maybe maybe anything that you could call i mean like buddhism isn't really a religion right like it's more of a it gets lumped into it but yeah yeah i guess but it's sort of like in, in its own category but i mean it just I feel like this did a, it, it did do that really good job of presenting even stuff like reincarnation and consciousness, you know, quote unquote soul in, in a way that was like surprisingly palatable coming from a very secular background. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he did a good job of presenting. He was like, here's the practice and it's separate yes. from the metaphysics. And actually here's how you can apply your own metaphysics to the practice. So you might meditate on a Buddha or you might meditate on an image of Christ, for example. Uh, yeah. But then he, he would, did a good job incorporating Christianity too. Yeah. Yeah. He clearly knew his audience, I think as a Western audience, but it also didn't feel preachy. And he actually actively went against the preachiness a few times where he was saying like, when, especially when he was talking about when someone is dying to not preach to them. And it sounded like he had a lot of experience with people in like hospice care or just people dying yeah. in general. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not like he was speaking just like theoretically, it's probably, you know, he's probably has done this. Mm-hmm. It's just like ways to help people, but not be preachy at the same time. It also just struck me, maybe this is not accurate or a little unfair to say, but it struck me as it doesn't really matter if you believe this is going to happen so long as you're ready for it. And so he doesn't have to convince you it's necessarily the case, just the practice right. enough will prepare you for it. 
And if it is indeed what happens, then you're ready. Well, I, I like I like that he framed reincarnation that way, where he basically said that to some extent it doesn't matter if reincarnation is like true in any sense, because believing in it is a good way for you to live. Right? He's got this great line in the opening. Uh, I've come to realize that the disastrous effects of the denial of death go far beyond the individual. They affect the whole planet. Believing fundamentally that this life is the only one, modern people have developed no long-term vision. So there is nothing to restrain them from plundering the planet for their own immediate ends and from living in a selfish way that could prove fatal for the future. How many more warnings do we need? Uh, Okay, and then he goes into some environmental stuff. But yeah, he says like, Fear of death and ignorance of the afterlife are fueling that destruction of our environment that is threatening all of our lives. So isn't it all the more disturbing that people are not taught what death is or how to die? He, he does a really good job of characterizing the West's like aversion towards death. And the more he talked about it in the book, the more I realized just kind of like generally how fucked up it is. Yeah. Right. It's a very short view. It's actually a very short yeah. view of of life. It's like a very short time horizon view of life where you can like pilfer while you're alive and just like the consequences don't really matter. Well, even just the way that we like shunt old people yeah, into old folks. Homes. Totally. And like, you know, they're very disincorporated from society and you know, you just like don't see it. Right. I mean, in most of history and I guess in a lot of other parts of the world, you would be around death for most of your life and like people who you aren't related to. But I've never been to a funeral for someone who I'm not related to. Have you guys? I guess I, well, okay, I have, but that was friend's kid, so that was different. But yeah, family, friends, grandmother, in terms of non relations. But yeah, it's like not that common. And you don't see the process because, like, one of the stages that he's talking about is like the process of dying. Like, some people die suddenly. But a lot of people die of like a disease and that's like a, a whole different stage of life as opposed to like your normal life. And I think we avoid that part of it for sure. Yeah, totally. If you're in the West and you're not healthy, then you're kind of in an underworld of the West. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. It's very hidden. And you don't even have to be dying. You just have to be ill. Right. I did, I did find his critique of the West to be quite compelling, specifically, I don't want to say critique of the West. That makes it sound too broad. His narrower critique, which is it aesthetically appears that the West has many creature comforts, but it has come at the expense of spiritual comfort and denying spiritual comfort is a too great of a sacrifice for the creature comforts. Basically like it denies you your true comfort. I pulled up a fantastic quotation on that. Nice. As you were saying it, if I can, if I can share it with the listeners. <laughs> Perhaps the deepest reason why we are afraid of death is because we do not know who we are. We believe in a personal, unique, and separate identity. But if we dare to examine it, we find that this identity depends entirely on an endless collection of things to prop it up. Our name, our biography, our partners, our family, home, job, friends, credit cards. It is on their fragile and transient support that we rely for our security. So when they are all taken away, will we have any idea of who we really are? Yeah. And he makes this point later that when you die or when you're in the process of dying, all of those things are going away. You're losing everything. 
So if your entire identity is based on the things you have around you, then it is pretty terrifying to be losing all of that. Totally. Those are all, I think he would also call them or Buddhists might call them attachments as well. Mm -hmm. Those are, those are your attachments. And I think if those are also your identity, then you're losing your identity when you die. The next part of the quotation is actually really good too, if I can keep reading. Without our familiar props, we are faced with just ourselves, a person we do not know, an unwavering stranger with whom we have been living all the time, but we never really wanted to meet. Isn't that why we have tried to fill every moment of time with noise and activity, however boring or trivial, to ensure that we are never left in silence with this stranger on our own? There's actually a lot of parallels to denial of death as well, because that was some of the theme of denial of death was was literally that. The uh, the point on attachments, I think his definition of it would be much broader than most people initially expect. Yeah. Like it's not just, you know, you spend 80K on a luxury car, so you're attached to it. It's like if you drive a Honda and you pride yourself on pragmatism, that's still an attachment, right? It's like a not a part of yourself. Yeah, the car is still part of your identity. Yeah, anything that's part, yeah. Even if you attach yourself to like, doing charity work or something, that's also an attachment. That's like anything that's like a personality attachment. Uh, Like this is me that is outside of kind of that pure mind is, is kind of like that. Any of those things are attachments. Yep. And the definition of the pure mind, I think it's just one of those things that is easy to explain in a sentence, but almost impossible to really understand, which is like the pure mind is just sort of this void. It's like the space between thoughts it is like the knowledge of all things, which is sort of the absence of any active subject or object. Uh, yeah. I'm struggling a bit because I'm kind of using phrases he uses in the book. And eventually you take a bunch of these phrases and they all start to mean something together. But the the word they used was, I think, rigpa, the fundamental concept mm-hmm. of innate knowledge. That's how I have it in my notes. It is actually really hard to get to that space without meditating, actually, Nat, going back to the beginning. What we were talking about is like, you're never still in a normal day-to-day scenario. And you don't naturally do this. Like, I don't think this is something a a person just naturally does. Like, you find something to fill the void. Because that's a little scary. He mentions this in the book. He mentions this in the book. The, after the immense physical exertion. Mm. Yeah. Yep. We've talked about this a little bit, right? Like, that there is this broad trend towards religion and spirituality happening. And I think that the like extreme athletics, cold plunge sauna stuff is like also a manifestation of that because that's another route to having these experiences is like total exhaustion. Mm-hmm. That's so true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause there, there's, there's that sect of Buddhism too, school of Buddhism, the, uh, the marathon monks, and that's how they achieve enlightenment is through extremely long walks and runs every day. And the, uh, the it's a seven-year program and it's wild. In the seventh year, they're doing 80 kilometers a day for 200 days. Wow. And they do, a, they do a 10-day fast with no food or water. I was going to say fasting is probably another another route. Yeah, fasting is another good But combining way fasting yeah. with the marathon... <laughs> I mean, that is next level. I don't know how these guys go without water for 10 days. That shouldn't really be biologically possible. But I mean, I guess if you're super, super low, if you're like basically meditating the whole time, so you're 
on running on like minimal fuel. Maybe you can Wait, so they're not fasting while they're doing practice. the marathon? No, no, no. Separate activities. <laughs> I was going to say they, they, do was the, like... they do the eighty kilometers a day for like two hundred days of the year, and then do regular meditation the rest of the time. It's insane. There were a few things in the book that would be classified under it shouldn't be possible for the body to do this. The one that's standing out in my mind is after death, like the heart remaining warm for several days and the body remaining in a posture that resembles life, but like the body yeah. is clearly dead. What did you guys think of this? Like, Yeah, there, were, there were a few of those where he lost me, especially <laughs> the one where the, the, the master who was so deep in meditation that he continued dying for seven days. And when they went to get his body, all that was left was the hair and fingernails. Did you catch that yeah. one? Yeah. Uh, that's what I was thinking. That was that's the one I thought that, you were going to go with. That was one that most lost me where I was like, mm. <laughs> this is what I'm having a hard time with. What do we think about Arthur flower do? Oh yeah. That one, that was really interesting. Can you, can you tell that story? Bill? Arthur flower do, he was the a British man who, <laughs> had vivid memories of mm. a previous life he had lived in Petra, like 2,000 years prior, where he was a soldier and a guard. And basically, he had all these vivid visions of some city and then was later watching a BBC documentary about Petra. And he was like, oh, that's the city. And got in touch, I forget, with someone from the BBC or someone from Petra who was like an archaeologist. But one way or the, or one way or the other, a archaeologist from Petra I started asking him like extremely specific questions about Petra stuff that was not in the documentary stuff that as the story goes was not in the documentary and should not have been known by a lay person. And he gave very specific and correct answers. Then they took him to Petra and he like identified very specific sites, some other stuff that basically suggested that he had lived a previous life there. What did you guys think of, of this story? I mean, it's a fascinating story. I can't find any replication of it online besides... There's a Wikipedia page. There is, but the Wikipedia page mostly talks about the reference in the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying. Yeah, it references this book, yeah. I I mean more like, do you buy it? Do you even consider something like this in the realm? When it's 3 a.m. at night and it's Nat and Neil in their bed staring at the ceiling... I consider this much more in the realm of possibility than the body, like the the story of the body, like deteriorating in seven days into just hair and fingernails. Yeah. Cause I do think, I do think there's something in this whole, like I I generally do think there's some truth to like collective consciousness and that it is possible for something like that to happen. They're also not the only one like this is this is the only case, obviously, he brought up in the book. But and I don't think I've ever heard of anything this extreme like this is next level. But there was a whole institute at Princeton for like 30 years around telepathy. Dude, that's exactly what I was just looking up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. And they and they yeah, they yeah. I would actually say a lot of their experiments look fairly compelling that there is something to oh. telepathy. I'm, I actually wonder if they got shuttered because they found something and the government was like, nope, this is not going to be publicly accessible. This has got to go. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I wonder, I mean, because it'd be such an advantage. And it, I mean, if you look at the history of the US government, they've looked into a lot of these concepts and like, yeah, we don't know what happened to a lot of them and are, are they real? Yeah. I just don't know if we would get, there, there wouldn't be like an academic paper on something like this because it would be such a sensitive topic. But I'm not, I, yeah, I'm not against the idea of like this collective consciousness thing. I've never heard of as much of 
like what this Arthur Flower Dude guy did. I've never heard it be so one-to-one of a match. Yeah. yeah. Like that part threw me off a bit. Yeah, I don't know if it was ever replicated or there's ever been another example of that, but like th- I'm skeptical of it, but I think it's more possible than like to what Nat was saying, the hair and fingernails being the only thing left after somebody died. Like that seems more impossible. Yeah, the, the flower do one, I can believe happening and I don't necessarily think it means like reincarnation. Yeah, right. exactly. Like I, I, there might just actually be to some, like for lack of a better term, there might be like quantum memory, right? Like that sounds like a super woo term. But if you told me that there were like weird situations where people, you know, kind of like telepathy can communicate across in very very meager ways across space and time i'm like it's not that hard for me to buy actually it's like telepathy is the woo word for it and then you describe some mechanism by which it could work it's kind of like uh simulation theory as tech bro god it's like saying god yeah, exists yeah. people are like no 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 but then you're like oh simulation They're like well yeah of course yeah. 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 They're like mathematically <laughs> that's the only option <laughs> yeah uh, it's yeah. like <laughs> you don't have to die because you're going to go to heaven no that's silly you're going to upload your brain into a computer and live forever yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> if you can point out the aws service i will believe <laughs> i mean but it kind of goes to like everything could be considered magical until you can explain it like if you took what we're doing right now back to somebody who lived like 300 years ago, they would be like, what kind of like sorcery is going on yeah. here that you can see these people's faces and you're thousands Dude. of miles away from each other. Anytime I like think about electricity or telecommunications, I just like, I don't believe it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like, wait, like, okay. So there's like power comes out of the wall. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> Yeah, I started like feeling strange. that way about. I've started feeling that way about airplanes. I'm like looking out the window, and I'm like, I need to shake this thought because yeah. it's going to break my brain. <laughs> airplanes are a weird one too because yep. we still don't like totally understand yep. how they work. Like we know they do, but the, the yeah. whole like it, it, it's just weird. The other yeah. one, the other one that's closer to the consciousness one of showing that we don't know how it works is <laughs> anesthesia is pretty unexplained. Like how we know it works, we know you're not conscious during it or at least have no memories of what happens during it, but we don't fully understand the mechanism of how it works. Mm. It just works. Yeah. I, I learned that actually, maybe this was in that, maybe we read this basically like it, you, you probably heard from the like pro marijuana crowd that, Oh, like your brain has cannabinoid receptors, right? Like it's meant to interface with this plant. There's something special about it. It's like, no, 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 no. We named those things. <laughs> <laughs> cannabinoid receptors because the plant fucks them up and we have no idea like what's going on there <laughs> right? it's like no, the same Nat. thing we like found the receptors <laughs> first and then we went looking for the plant <laughs> i don't know if you guys read the oh i know you did neil the biology yeah yeah anthology mm. but he talks about that in there too how like a lot of the great science is just random accidents uh oh and we did happy accidents didn't we we did happy accidents we did have a long yep. time ago, yep. right? Yeah. It's like you can't plan some of this stuff. So, yeah, I mean, if you if you told me in 100 years that, like, we had found some way to tap into some weird mental powers that we didn't know we had, I'd, I'd like, kind of believe it. Yeah, and also, like, think about even something more, something we take for 
something we even take for granted, like radio, right? Like radio waves are like in the air. <laughs> like it's like, oh, how does a rate like how yeah. am I listening to the radio? Oh, there's just waves in the air that are like transmitted from a place. <laughs> yeah, the air is vibrating yeah. <laughs> and your little hunk of metal can pick up on that yep. and then play music. Absolutely not. <laughs> that is sorcery. <laughs> okay, wait. The, the la- last thing on this, this is like the, it's the one reason I'm, I am kind of sympathetic to the anti-EMF crowd mm. because like it does feel like there is, you know, all of these things about our brain and body that we don't understand. And like we clearly do produce like electromagnetic frequencies and whatnot as humans. And so there, I could actually really imagine a future where we've like found some other way to have this technology without the crazy EMF pollution Yeah, because we discovered that it was like dramatically increasing anxiety or something like that. Mm. Kind of like, kind of like what happened with lead and gasoline, right? Yeah. Like we, we like thought using gas was this like free lunch or whatnot. And then we realized like, Oh, the lead pollution was making people kill each other. Yeah. And then we got it out of the air and like, it was great. I can imagine a future where we realize like, oh, the EMF pollution is actually making people like super depressed. Yeah, or it has anxious. some effect. And so we need to like pull that out. Yeah, there's a there's yeah. an excerpt from a book, which I bought, but it's uh, it's just sitting on my shelf right now. I forget the name of it, but it's about basically the history of electricity hmm. and like how it could be a major think book. But it was one of the, the excerpt that caught my attention was um, in the early experiments with electricity, like ben- Benjamin Franklin days, right? Like, when they were really starting to learn about it, there was a guy, I think his last name was Volta because I think they named the Volt after him. He generated what is effectively like a one volt current and then tried to see what the effects on a human being are. And he didn't get that far because I don't think they had that much, you know, sensitive equipment. But one of the effects that he could measure was heart rate and heart rate went up with across the board with even a one volt current, which is nothing. Like if that was in your vicinity, like I think it was some definition of like vicinity of what that meant, like within six inches or something. Um, But it stimulated your heart rate, which, and it wasn't that much, even if it was only a couple beats per minute, but Nat, I forget what book this was that we did, but the lifespan of a creature is very correlated with heart rate, not directly, but like your metabolism rate, like the higher the metabolism, the lower the lifespan, I think was what. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like you only get a certain number of heartbeats. Effectively. You get yeah. about a billion. The Well, the thing is the organism gets about a billion heartbeats. Yep. Well, and which is why like when you work out yeah. a lot or you do a lot of cardio, your resting heart rate goes down. It means your heart's not working as hard to keep yeah. you alive. So I guess the corollary, corollary effect of that would be like if something in the air was making everyone's heart rate go up by like two beats per minute. It's like individually, that's probably not that big of a deal. And then you have to do like cost benefit of like all the stuff we're getting from being able to transmit these things versus the two beats per minute. But like in aggregate, you could say how many lifespans less that might be across the world. So it's, I don't know, it's like not a free lunch necessarily. Nat, to your point, I completely could see that happening in like a hundred years. They look back and they're like, wow, that's how they transmitted like, like communications. Like that's so, so awful. Those people, they're so dumb. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, the the new rage is going back to wired headphones i know i've seen that yep yeah. is that right is that because of the emf mm-hmm. stuff yeah bluetooth headphones are one of the highest sources that you're regularly exposed to as i have and it's like it's on your head putting it you know directly <laughs> into your 
into yeah. your skull. Do wired so headphones not do that? A lot of people are switching to wired. They don't have nearly as much because mm. it's something about the Bluetooth that increases the output. I haven't looked at this super closely, but I basically only like I, I I very I use them a lot less. Like if I'm just in in the office listening to something, I'll just put it on speaker on my phone mm. instead of like using headphones and stuff. Dude, you just need like the right receiver and the right transmitter, and maybe that's what telepathy is. It's like we don't know how to tap into you, it. You can, <laughs> I know. Well, and it, it's interesting too because it's like there's there is a. I think he makes this really good point in, in Living and Dying, kind of in that passage too, that like if you're constantly bombarded with stimulation, you can never like step back and actually like confront yourself. Yeah. And that might be true for all these other processes too, right? Like we're so overstimulated by, you know, our electronics and whatnot that we don't have the same sense of smell or you know, connection with nature, all these other things that we used to have, like those other senses have just been dulled and tuned out. It actually like in, as far as an order of operations go, telepathy is like the last thing before that. It's like understanding your own mind before you can understand how to interact with another. And before that it's understanding your own body. Like I think about, I was reading about Wim Hof a few years back because they actually just like took him to Stanford. They were like, all right, you say you can do all these things with your body. Can you really and he would do stuff like, oh, I'm going to move like extra blood to my right hand. And then he would. <laughs> yeah. But that's actually the first step. Like that, that seems to be the first thing you would need to do before you can level up to mind or cross mind kind of things. Yeah. So you're saying we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> we should meditate before we think about telepathy. <laughs> no, it's just interesting thought. It's like... We- <laughs> You can kind of like, you can make your hand move, but you don't really know why or how, right? And there's only so much of your body that like the interface is exposed to you. I think you were going to say something a moment ago. Oh no, I was just looking. Uh, I was looking for ways to get back into the book <laughs> as you were talking. I was great, listening. Great and I telepathy was, tangent, though. That was, that was <laughs> yeah, awesome. exactly. <laughs> I was like, I feel bad that we're. <laughs> dishonoring this wonderful book by going on a 20 minute (laughs) tangent into telepathy. Um, One thing that is even like a more attainable step ahead of even meditating is the, the idea of mindfulness, which I know has become a buzzword over the last decade or so. But even just that idea of like pulling yourself back into the moment Mm -hmm. is actually like you realize how much of your life you spend like living in the past or in the future that you're not actually in the moment. Yeah. I found that to be like super helpful. That's, that's one thing I've been doing for maybe like a year or so net to your point about meditation. Like Mm. it, this isn't quite meditating, but it's even just pulling yourself back into that present is such a, like such a wonderful tool to have in the toolkit because it actually makes a lot of things better. Cause so many times you're in a, like if you're in a bad mood, it might be because you're thinking about something in the past or you're worried. You're probably thinking about anxious. You're thinking about something in the future. And it's like, you might just be eating like dinner and worried about something that's like going to happen in six months or will might not ever happen. And it's like, no, I can actually yeah. just enjoy this food that I'm eating right now and these people that I'm eating with and feel really happy actually in that moment by, by just doing that. Yeah. This is another thing he does a really good job of is taking a step beyond some of those concepts. Yep. Right. So it's like, cause everybody's heard, okay, mindfulness, you should be more mindful, you know, don't worry about the future you know, don't regret the past, like those kinds of things. But 
there isn't like a why attached to it usually. And he attaches a really good why, which is this like obsession with control and permanence, right? He's got this great line in chapter 25 where he says, one of the chief reasons we have so much anguish and difficulty facing death is that we ignore the truth of impermanence. We so desperately want everything to continue as it is that we have to believe that things will always stay the same, but this is only make-believe. Right, to your point about worrying about the future, it's very often we are worrying about something in our current situation changing or not going according to plan. Yep. Right. And then a little later, he says, there's only one law in the universe that never changes, that all things change and that all things are impermanent. And it's like that, that's such a great framing, right? So like, it's not like being mindful is one way to frame it. And another way to frame it is developing a deeper comfort with the world is just out of your control and it's going to keep changing. And there's almost nothing you can do about it. Yeah. You're going to have to accept whatever it is anyway. So you may as well accept it now. The thing going through my head is, uh, I feel like I've become like a level one practitioner of this where the impermanence Mm. part is not hard for me, but the thing that is hard for me is accepting the impermanence, like from an emotional standpoint, like intellect, like we moved into this house intellectually i'm like yeah it's you know there's only so many years but there's something tragic about it that as i set it up i like imagine myself taking something down and it kind of kills me inside and i think that's like that's a level two practitioner of impermanence is accepting that part as well yeah yeah or like uh the the silly example of this is like uh i mean entropy is basically this idea right the same idea like things will tend towards disorder you could make that argument for like cleaning something be like, yeah, it's just going to get dirty again the next day. Right. Like I don't need to clean it, but then I don't know. Like, I feel like the Buddhist cultures are some of the cleanest, most like organized places in the world. Like I just think about Japan and it's like orderly, everything in its place. Like, you know, a lot of ceremonial things where you got to get every step, like the tea ceremony where you got to get every single step, right. It's just like such a, what's the right word for it? Like paradoxical idea. And somehow it gets beyond the tragic side of it. And there it's like, there it's being so in the moment that it's not tragic anymore. Like a deal, like in your case, it's like enjoying it while you have it, like in that exact moment that you have it, but not grasping at it, I guess. There's a really good book, a very short book called a monk's guide to a clean house and mind. And there's a quote from it that I really like. It's basically cleaning isn't just about removing dirt. It's linked to cultivating the mind. And basically, even though it seems antithetical to what you describe, it actually supports a different one of the ambitions, which is like the cleanliness of the home and body creates a calm, clear mind and a calm, clear mind is the foundation of a good life. So even though the cleanliness is transient, it's useful for these other goals. Yeah. And I think if you want to see the contrast of how the West would view something like that, it's like the Sisyphus myth, which is another made you think episode, but it's like pushing a rock uphill uh, constantly yeah. with no end in sight. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I think like, I don't know. I feel like our framework is much more like, what's the goal? Like, what are you accomplishing? Mm-hmm. It's like a little bit, that's more of the frame of mind that we use. I think. Yeah, cleaning cleaning is a low leverage activity. You can pay someone else to do that so that you can write more Twitter threads. (laughs) (laughs) 
Honestly, more, um, a lot of people will say I would do that. And then it's like when you actually look at what you spend your time on, it's like watching some stupid, you know, show or something like. Yeah, exactly. A, a lot of hiring people, I think, is more about feeling important than actually <laughs> mm-hmm. needing the help. Yeah. Which is an identity attachment, I guess. Right. It's like yeah. I am important. That is mm-hmm. me. That's actually another thing going back to the book that he used a lot. It came up like in every section was thinking about others as well as you're like in, in addition to yourself. So it's like even talking about if you're sick, like he's talking about if you are the one dying, thinking about everybody else in that same position and saying, take all that suffering onto me as a way to almost remind, I, I don't know. It almost seemed like that would remind you that like, I'm not, this is not about me. Like this is about every, like yeah. every, there's a lot of people dealing with this. This, the suffering is not, because I think the most tragic suffering is it's unique to me and you feel like you're right. alone, which is a horrible feeling. And um, this kind of just remi- like it's putting yourself back in that headspace of like, it's not about me. Pages 122 to the beginning of 124. He just goes on this like two page assault on the ego. <laughs> I love those. It was just so good. He just eviscerated the idea of an ego. I'll read a couple of couple of yeah, quotes. Basically, he starts by, the ego invites a spiritual practice, initially, thinking it'll mm. support itself. And then as the spiritual oh, practice... Oh, yeah, that's such a good section. <laughs> yeah. As the spiritual yeah, practice takes hold, it points at the ego as the enemy, at which point the spiritual part of the mind and the ego are effectively at war. There are some really good little quotes here that I'll, that I'll read. We begin to rebel because we hate what we see. We may strike out in anger and smash the mirror. There's actually a good meme we can throw in the notes. You know the puppy wearing the party hat looking upset? It's like, yeah. it's that. I- I'll find it and I'll share it. It's like yeah, me yeah. finding a spiritual awakening and it's like the man's brain expanding and blowing up. And the second frame is me realizing like what my whole life has been now that I've had this spiritual awakening. It's like a dog, <laughs> <laughs> it's a dog crying with the party hat. It's like... <laughs> um, ego poses as the righteous arbiter of all conduct the shrewdest position of all from which to undermine your faith and erode whatever devotion and commitment to spiritual change you can have it's a really good that section is amazing yeah it also highlights the tricks your mind plays on you yep or your ego plays on you i should say I mean, I saw this with a handful of friends who over the last few years went from like very staunch atheists and like softened the position to various degrees, either to just like agnostic or in some cases they've like actually fully converted to a religion. And a lot of it was actually what these two pages described as the ego kind of being like, you're a rational guy. Like this is some woo woo stuff. Like, and you could hear it as they were talking about it, relaying their journeys was very much the voice described here. Have you guys been able to get past like the because that is something that I, I do feel when I read books like this that I'm still trapped in where it's like even the discussion we were just having about the nails and hair being left over. It's like mm-hmm. you, it's like, yeah, you yeah. want to like you you believe in some parts of it and then other parts you're like, nah, no way. That's not possible. I feel like if a mir- like most people, if a miracle was staring them in the face, they wouldn't recognize it. Because the like the seduction of like the rational mind, so I, I do believe that strongly. But I think there are certain things that if you experience yourself to some degree, they'll like open the door to what you might call woo woo or you might call spiritual. One example that 
actually comes to mind for me quite a bit. Have you guys ever had sleep paralysis? Mm-hmm. You I know, the, like sleep paralysis demon, the like yeah. hallucination. It's yeah. wild that everybody or not everybody, but a large majority of people who have sleep paralysis experience this shared hallucination, which is basically Neil. It's like you kind of, you sort of hallucinate your room as if your eyes are open and you really believe you're awake, but you're not. Your body is completely oh, wow. asleep and your eyes are closed. You're actually like, your body is essentially paralyzed. So hence sleep paralysis. And it, uh, it it's actually very scary the first couple times it happens because it's, it feels like you're trapped in your body. You like try to yell for help. You try to get up and you just can't move. And for me, this happened the first two times. I've probably had sleep paralysis like a dozen times, but I've only had the hallucination twice where there's like a dark shadowy thing in my room and it just walks over to me and sits on my chest. And if you go to the Wikipedia page for sleep paralysis or you go to Reddit and you search for it, this is a shared hallucination. Wow. That was like my first like open the door to like what you might call woo woo. I was like, there's something we don't understand there, but this is way too specific that everybody's experiencing this. The same thing. It's like the opposite of lucid dreaming. Yep. And it's not everybody for what it's worth, but it is a mass shared hallucination. Yeah. Yeah. The the other version of that, and I've experienced this too, is like the images that you see on certain psychedelics, particularly mushrooms and DMT. Like the the like DMT gods, like everybody kind of describes them in very similar ways. The elfish like and type there there's that, but then there's also these sort of like for lack of a better way to describe it, kind of like beings of pure light. Mm, yeah. That do resonate with a lot of like iconography in like basically every religion. Wow. Right. So like you can you could basically imagine it being Christ. You could imagine it being like the kind of like light emanating from a Buddha type figure. You could imagine it as like a Hindu you could imagine it like you can see how it's been portrayed in a lot of these other places. Uh and so it that really feels like it's typing it's tapping into something quite like deep in our like consciousness or maybe it's in our just biology and our brains. Like, I guess you could make the argument that like that image has been planted in you from seeing it other places. And then for some, you know, and then when you take this drug, it summons it, but it's such a real, like, it feels like you're having a communication with someone like more so on the, the DMT version. And like everybody describes such a similar experience that, you know, it's not like everybody does describe the same experience when they get drunk. Like there's clearly something going on there. And then the the weirdest one with DMT is that people get kicked out of it. Hmm. Like if they do it too much, there's like very common reports of like those beings telling them like, you can't come back here anymore. Hmm. Like you need to go figure out why you're doing this and like resolve those issues and stop asking us to like fix it for you. Hmm. It'll be like some form of that conversation. And like, that's another extremely like common story you hear. That might be the scariest thing I've ever heard. (laughs) Yeah. right. (laughs) Jeez. Yeah. And I've, I've had some like, extremely weird experiences on psychedelics too that just cannot be explained like scientifically so that, that's what makes me sympathetic to some of this stuff and not, and not just like in the context of what happened on the psychedelics but like what happened after so yeah it's like there's just stuff we don't understand so i yeah like, there's like foreshadowing stuff yes. that people say for L- like uh, i think i forget if it's mushrooms or lsd but i've heard that also be something where it's, like it's almost like deja vu except 
a lot of people like almost log what they saw after and then you write it down and then the the thing happened in real life like later something they were almost like told was going to happen happened okay have i told you guys this story maybe i'll just share this i've like i've debated sharing this publicly for a while this feels like a good context to share it i'm ready after Uh, that intro like yeah (laughs) yeah this 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 is why i like am inclined to believe in some sort of spooky stuff i did like a fairly high dose of mushrooms in like january 2021 around there like right at the beginning of that year and when i was on mushrooms i we were like we were out walking so it was like it was an active experience and then at one point during it it felt it was just like it was kind of like overcoming, you know, it was like too powerful. And so I had to like sit down and like went very deep into it. And while I was very deep into it, I had a conversation or like an experience of sorts with uh, my grandmother, a figure who was clearly deaf. And then there was like a baby that was there. And my grandmother was like alive, but she was sick, but it was this very like, like, it's okay. Like, I'm going to leave soon, but it's all right. Like, I'm ready to go. I'm, like, happy to go. Like, that was very much the character of the conversation. And then, you know, and and then there was, like, a baby there. I was like, okay. So I came out and it was, like, really, like, what the hell was that? That was, like, very strange. Because it it was one of the most vivid things I'd, like, ever seen on psychedelics. And then, like, a week or two later, I get a call from my dad that she only has a couple days left to live. And so we all like go out to Minnesota to like be with her, um, you know, as she's passing. And while we're there, like in Minnesota, Kosek gets pregnant with Sutton. Wow. Wow. (laughs) So, and this all happened over like two weeks. Wow. Like, yeah, that's, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'd heard. Yeah. Uh, I've seen like other people say similar things that's wild yeah and like i i know i didn't make up the memory after because i told the guy who hosted the experience as soon as i came out of the trip i was like i was like what like i've never seen anything like this before like what happened and he was basically like i don't know but we'll probably find out (laughs) (laughs) you you know what's you know what's crazy like this is the rational way of looking at it but it's still it's still like a woo way of looking at it the rational way of looking at it is like if our understanding of time is just completely wrong, like it's not linear, it doesn't work the way that we experience it. I could see like this being something that takes you out of like our normal linear time, essentially puts your consciousness in something that more resembles like what time actually looks like, but we don't know how to visualize it. So our brain has like no idea what's going on and is just like, Oh, these are some figures and like, but, but it is, it is just as real as kind of the world that we experience day to day. I I'm, I'm more inclined to the interpretation. If we were going to find a, a sciencey one, that there is a like connectiveness to consciousness, especially Definitely. among people who are like biologically related. Yeah. And so there, there is like a part of you that can sense when somebody you're related to is like dying or about to die. If you are sufficiently attuned to that sense and like some of these entheogens help you like tap back into that you know there's just like 
that that I actually do kind of believe because you hear about that with like twins too, yeah. where like twins can sometimes know at a distance if something's wrong with the other one, or like mm. parents or like, like mother's intuition too. Like, and I was reading uh, something yeah. the other day that was like for every every time a woman is carrying a baby, whether that baby is ultimately born or not, um, I think it's past a certain stage. Some of that baby's cells live on in the in the woman after oh yeah forever like the baby is like partially like the baby's dna will be found in the mom wow even later and so it's like you're literally a piece of the baby is in the mom not to say that's where like the collective consciousness stuff comes from it doesn't have to be dna related but like nat there's probably something to that like twins share dna basically i mean they're basically the same person not the same person but like same dna I definitely lean woo-woo on these things. And I, even the word woo-woo, I think, is kind of like condescending. It is, because yeah. Woo-woo is I know, yeah. I don't like that word. Yeah. I wish I had a different yeah. word. But we I need to rebrand basically, it. We need to rebrand. I mean, I think the brand is like spiritual, it's like, right? Yeah. Spiritual has a yeah. problem, too. Because like spiritual also, I mean, like when I hear spiritual, I think like, I don't know, yeah. like, you know, a girl with dreadlocks of yeah. Burning Man. <laughs> all like, all the words have been taken, yeah. Yep. But let's, let's go with spiritual for now. It's basically... We just haven't figured out how to measure it yet, right? And then the question mm-hmm. becomes, do you believe that we have figured out how to measure everything or a great majority of things or even a fraction of things? And that question, I'm very comfortable being like, I doubt we're yeah, measuring anything. Not. You know, like we've got the yeah. temperature and the barometric pressure and yeah, we're doing pretty well. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, it's okay. like, I think I think uh, we're all probably in this camp, but like, I think we're, it's like, that whole book we did beginning of infinity. Like, I think that's where we are in the like journey mm-hmm. of being able to know everything. I think we're so early uh, to bring a crypto yeah. term back. Uh, we're, we're so early. <laughs> we're so early. Uh, but yeah, but I think, I think we are as you, like the human journey or like the intelligence journey, taking it back to the previous book we did. Like, I think we're yeah. so much, there's so much that we can't measure or know, which is definitely out there. Like, I, I think like the idea that we're at the end of knowledge is like so stupid. Right. Well, I, I, I've been thinking about this a lot. I like, it's so funny. We're touching on like all of the article drafts that I have in my <laughs> folder right now. Collective I, I consciousness, a, man. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> dude, I, I literally earlier today, I was working on an article about like uh, all the things we can't measure. Right. Wow. And how this, like we have, we're overly obsessed with measuring things. <laughs> like it, it comes up here. Right. And you didn't even bring it uh, up. Another one. I know. Yeah. It's like, okay, we're all thinking this collective consciousness. Exactly. The, it, I wonder if that's where some of this, what feels like a great awakening is coming from is I feel like we kind of grew up in this mythology that we had like solved knowledge. Yeah. Right. We like, you know, we can do everything with science. We like figured out the economy, like war is over. Uh, you know, we figured out food and health and all of this stuff. And like, everything is amazing now. Like you don't have to worry. And like the last 20 years have just been a, a giant realization of like how much we actually did not know. And that is what's driving people to like abandon an obsession with thinking they know everything. And that in turn is like leading back to these like older traditions, you know, whether it's some form of spiritual mysticism or Christianity or any Abrahamic religion, right? It's like, it's this kind of sense of like, oh, no, okay, like we actually didn't figure that much out at all. And maybe this old stuff is better. 
Like let, let's, you know, we'll, 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 yeah. we'll keep surgery. Surgery is great, <laughs> <laughs> but we're going to like bring back some of the Buddhism, Christianity, whatnot stuff too. It is almost like an adolescence thing. You're shielded from knowledge for some time, then you have access to it. So you think, you know, everything. And then you realize, you know, nothing. I would say between 25 to 30, the amount I feel I know has gone down. Yeah, I would completely agree. I I reread some of my old articles that I wrote when I was like 23. And like, man, I wish I had this confidence still. (laughs) Yeah. How does anybody (laughs) have the confidence to say anything? (laughs) That guy was so confident. Like, (laughs) Actually, okay. So now that's a great sidebar tangent to go on because... I, I like alluded to this earlier, but Sheena has been get, digging through the whole catalog of made you think, right? So she's up to 72. Yeah, yeah. She actually made a very similar comment, like, cause we came back after the hiatus. That's where she is now. And she was like mm-hmm. comparing that to like the early made you think days. And she was saying you and Nat mm-hmm. are so much more, uh, you like qualify, like everything you say now versus like before you just oh, say yeah. it. Um, or like, or, or she just, especially like, I think she noticed it more with you with your like, like you especially, I think used to be very like, this is the way it is. And like, I'm right. And like, not in a bad way. You just had a level of confidence that you're exactly what you're talking about in the articles. No, we can, we can say it's a bad way. It's, I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's a, no, but it's like a right, journey. Like, I think uh, that everybody goes on. Kruger. No, but I think everybody exactly. kind of goes through that. Yours is just like, it lives on forever because of the articles and the podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> I think every 23 year old feels like that to some extent. Like, no, it's I know everything. I, I was thinking about that. You guys, you guys saw that TikTok that went viral, right? Of like the girl crying into her phone because she has to commute to a nine to five job. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, like, yeah, oh, is I this all there that. is? And like, everybody was kind of like dunking on her and stuff. But somebody made a good point that I think is true, which is like, everybody feels that way at some point, probably like right after they graduate college, right? Like, or most people feel that way. It's like, wait, like. I might have to just do this until I die. Yeah. Like it kind of sucks. <laughs> and then you like, you know, talk about it with a friend or something and like get over it and move on. But now that we like have this mass broadcasting capability available to everyone, like things that you're going to like move past and like forget about relatively quickly end up getting like stuck in time and the sort of like time capsule aspect. I wonder if that's going to like, I have this optimistic belief that like our children's generation is not going to want screens or like any kind of social media Hmm. because in the same way that like, what's a good analogy here? I I think social media will be viewed like smoking by like, yeah, I think, I think because well, dude, so many kids are going to grow up and be like, wait, mom, you're like making fun of me on Instagram for years while I was like, a toddler like that's fucked up yeah. right like it makes me really sad when i see people make fun of their kids on social media because like kids probably gonna see that someday yeah like and then they, you know and they'll always remember like oh i could never fully hang out with mom because she always had a phone in front of her face or dad was always like on his phone looking at sports stuff instead of playing with me right like kids are going to grow up with this very very negative feeling towards devices it's like this is what was taking my parents away from me was this device yeah, exactly yeah. Yep. Exactly. So I wonder how that's going to like manifest in their behavior. Yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. so interesting. I never thought about that. That is kind of like if you had a parent that was like working a lot and then exactly. in your mind you were like work life balance is really critical because I never saw exactly. my dad, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, I, that's actually one of the things that drew me back to meditation hmm. was realizing like the, I mean, it's, it's tough, right? Like phones are super addictive and they're super entertaining. And if you're like, kid is kind of having a meltdown or like being fussy or you're just like a little bored of like, you know, playing kids games, like you want to look at your phone, right? I mean, I, like every, I think every parent feels that and it's like a very hard thing to unwire, but like meditation helps a lot. And it's like, I don't want to be like pulling out my phone when I'm with the kids, right? Yeah. Like I don't want that yeah. to be a thing. And it's super, super helpful for like slowing that impulse. You got to read uh, Life is Short by Paul Graham every morning. Because that one, I know. Like, how many, <laughs> there was one line in that yeah, that's with me. Magic Christmases. Yes. Yeah, that's the one that always sticks with me. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Yep. You get like seven Christmas, or fewer. You get like five Christmases where they're old enough to recognize what's going on, but not so old that they realize it's kind of a sham, right? <laughs> yeah. You get like, yeah, you get five. <laughs> yeah. Very special. Yeah. Yeah. Earlier, when we all had a topic in mind, I had the following which I'll present for the group's consideration. Most people die in a state of unconsciousness. This is on page 190. One fact we have learned from the near-death experience is that comatose and dying patients may be much more aware of things around them than we realize. And then a couple paragraphs later, peaceful death is really an essential human right, more essential perhaps than the right to vote or the right to justice. It is a right on which all religious traditions tell us a great deal depends for the well-being and spiritual future of the dying person. There's no greater gift of charity you can give than helping a person die well. And then over the, I think, next chapter or the previous chapter, either right before or after this, he talks about the actual process of death, where first the body goes and then parts of the mind. Well, I'm, I'm curious, A, I'm just curious what you guys thought of it, but the line that really stood out to me was a peaceful death as an essential human right. Yeah. There was something in there that, that really resonated that he talked about, which was like what somebody needs for a peaceful death and, and like, you know, how they they are more aware than you maybe think. And uh, one of the things he mentioned in like what somebody needs for a peaceful death is permission to die. Yeah. Page 187. Which I thought, yeah. Yeah. It's like, I thought that was so powerful. I mean, one, because so many people like, like people's families can often try to like prolong their lives, right? Try to like keep them alive, keep doing stuff, even if they don't necessarily want it anymore. But I also think the permission thing is really, really real. I, I remember when my mom's mom died, my dad said something to that effect to her like one night as we were leaving the like hospice center, like and she was basically like, you know, she was pretty much unresponsive, right? Like she was getting close. And like, as we were leaving, he said something to that effect in her ear. Like, it's okay. You can go like, she's going to be okay. Like about my mom. And then she like died that night. Right. Wow. So it really felt like that was part of what she needed. Right. To go. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty incredible of your dad. That's surprising. (laughs) Not at all. Not at all. There's also something to the environment too, that somebody dies in, which he talks about, which is, you know, kind of in contrast, I think to the way a lot of like modern medical interventions are, they're not designed around like a peaceful death. They're designed around like doing everything you can, which I think to some extent that 
probably is a good thing. On the other hand, it's also like, I mean, there's a lot of things, right? It's like the system is kind of incentivized to do that as well because everything you do is an additional bill. Billable. Yeah. <laughs> um, so partially the system is incentivized for that. Partially it's family members as well pushing for stuff like that. But I think it all kind of stems from like, we just don't have this familiarity with what death is and that it's an inevitable inevitable part of life. And yeah. we just, you know, we think like, like we... And it's taken us a long way, but like humanity definitely has a God complex. Like we can fix everything. How did you feel reading this book, Neil? If you want to share. Yeah, I I actually felt, you know, this maybe uh, ties back to ego, but like I actually felt really proud of what I did for my dad, Mm. which was basically like making him feel like a person. There were a lot of times like, you know, he was because he was in the hospital for like two months before we came home. And then, you know, he stayed alive for another like year and a half. But we had to really and part of this is like, again, going back to the system and how it's organized. But like, we really had to fight to get him home. Like, we had to fight every person along the way being like, we will do it. We will learn how to take care of him. We'll take care of him. Because the real like the incentives are to put like put someone in a hospice center for as long as it takes basically and let them wither yeah. away and and die but like the entire time my dad was at home like literally till he died we had like a routine we hung out with him we watched movies with him we talked to him mm-hmm. like i learned a lot from him during that time cuz like i don't know after you're not a kid anymore you know yeah you have conversations with your parents and you can still have good conversations with your parents but you never get like that stretch of I don't know. I had like a year and a half plus COVID was part of that. So like the COVID year of that, I like literally didn't really go anywhere. So it was like, I probably got decades worth of time with him in that year and a half. And he was really at peace as well with, with that. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I, I felt like that was a good validation of like, you know, the going back to deal the quote you just read, like the greatest charity you can give someone is helping them die. Well, I feel like I did that. So it made me feel good about that from his perspective because he did, he could have died in like a hospital or hospice center and he didn't. And he had a actually pretty good and to as good as it could have been end to his life. And, and he was actually like, it's funny, some of the things that were brought up in that section around like the dying person will want to like comfort the people around them. That was really what it was. Yeah. Like, I think my dad was very at peace mm-hmm. with like what was happening. Like he felt like his job was done, but like not... But it was more like him giving comfort to everyone else around him. Like, no, things are going to be okay. It's like, it's fine. You, you know, you, you guys will be okay. Yeah. So it's like, that was a lot of like that section really, you know, made me feel like that. And then even when he was going, a lot of the things were kind of similar, Nat, to what you just described. Like he wasn't responsive for like two days before he actually passed. Mm. But he wasn't like uncomfortable either, actually. It was just like his body was just like starting to shut down, but it wasn't like because you we had like uh, you can monitor like heart rate and like other stuff and not like his vitals were distressed um, in any way. And I, I contrast that with how people die in like hospitals. And like this was my dad's experience in the hospital. It could be different for other people. But like when he was in the hospital, one, you can never sleep. Right. So you're constantly in this weird, like agitated state because somebody's always coming in to interrupt you. But I remember like vividly at one point, this is post-surgery. So he's already like lost blood and like gone through his surgery. So when he would fall asleep, 
his blood pressure would drop to a level that they didn't think was safe. So they would wake him up and then also give him a blood pressure increasing drug. But then his blood pressure would spike and they would give him a blood pressure lowering drug. And he was literally on this like seesaw for like a week. And I think about people who probably die in hospitals and that is like literally their experience. And guess what? The hospital is billing each time they're injecting you with a drug, you know? So it's like, yeah, like dying in a hospital is like the worst possible way to go. Obviously, a lot of people don't have a choice, but hospice is preferable to a a hospital for sure. Um, Because at least in hospice, basically the difference for people that don't know is like hospital, they're trying to fix you. Hospice, they're basically, you know, you you have a terminal condition and the job is basically to keep you comfortable. And, you know, they do a okay job of it, but it's usually manpower related. Um, There's actually not a lot of money in hospice, even though it's part of the medical system. So they're usually short staffed. So it's not as comfortable as like probably somebody would be at home. But to be at home, you need like a family member who would do it. So yeah, it was like, I I just reading that it was like, okay, like that was as peaceful as his death could possibly have been. And it could have been so, so much worse. That's great that you guys were able to do that. It gave gave me a thought. Was there anything else that you wanted to share about that, Neil, before I segue? No. Or a deal? Did you have something saying something? I was just going to say, I mean, both for your dad, but also for you, your mom and your brother. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's like, you don't have this feeling of like, obviously there's a million times I want to still talk to him, but I don't have this feeling that like anything was left unsaid in the moment. Mm -hmm. Like everything that was going to be said, like he was conscious, aware, was able to respond. Like I got a lot of, I basically got a lot of the conversations that, you know, I think somebody who maybe would die suddenly, which happens obviously all the time, you might feel like, oh, there were conversations left unsaid uh, that I, or if let's say somebody goes immediately into a state where they're not conscious, even if they're still alive and you can't have those conversations, that's also, I would imagine, super hard. So I, I feel like in as much as those that time sucked, I have like, I don't have the regrets that like a lot of people might have if somebody died like suddenly or they weren't able to have those those conversations. And to your point about living with him for that year and a half, like you probably got almost as much adult time with your dad as most people get. Yeah, because before he was sick, I wasn't living near my parents. I mean, near enough. I was in New York and and they were in Maryland. But like, I mean, I would go home every few months or so, you know, like it's not like I, yeah. I would go home for like a weekend, you know, it wasn't like I was, st- you know, getting extended time. And yeah, and the older you get, probably the less extended time you get. So yeah, probably did from an actual time perspective, get the same amount, if not even potentially yeah. more, depending on where I eventually live. Yeah. It's more than just the hours too. Cause yeah, if you yeah. see someone for two days, every two months, it's different from you know, 12 days a year, right? The continuity right. and the depth. It's like the first 45 minutes of a conversation, you just got to warm up. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also like, it's also like, I think having when he was in that state too, he was way more vulnerable emotionally mm-hmm. than I think he was in the rest of his life. Like, you know, I think like in general, we're, I think our generation does a better job of this, but like in general, I think like, and my dad wasn't as like stoic as probably like some people's dads are. But he was still like on that side of the the spectrum, like, oh, it's fine. Like, this doesn't hurt or, you know, like whatever, like, you know, just whatever like men do, especially of that generation. Yeah. And it, it like, obviously, so growing up, I never experienced that side of him. 
But when he was in like a very vulnerable physical state, he was, and also he knew he was, you know, his time was very limited. He just was like an open book and like very emotional, like um, not emotional, but emotionally aware in his conversations and like what he would say to us and stuff. So, mm. and I saw like even some of the other things that are in this, in this section about dying, like where there's, you know, there's all the, the stages like of anger and of, you know, frustration. Like he definitely had some of that at the beginning when everything was, was happening. Like when we first came home, but I think like he, couple months in really was just like, this is what's happening. And like that, this is the situation. And like, I just got to make the best of it. And yeah. And then from that point on, it was like, how do we make the most of the time? You also don't know what the end time is, right? You like, it could, could be like a yeah. month after that. You don't, you don't know. Um, so it was, yeah, it was just like a really, like, I, it sounds crazy, but there's like definitely times where I look back on that time with like nostalgia, even though as crazy as it is, cause it was not a fun time in the moment at all. But there's like definitely elements of it, which are like, wow, I, you know, don't think I would have ever gotten that opportunity if that didn't happen. It does make you think about your own death too, a lot. Like when you see somebody dying, who's that close to you and you spend that much time around that person, it's like, one, it's like how you want to die. Like, obviously you don't get to choose, right? It just kind of happens. But you'd, I really am against dying in a hospital now. Like if I have the option not Mm. to. Like I would much yeah. rather, um, and actually, it's funny. My uncle, my dad's, my dad's old, like cousin, but was very close to him, so it was uh, like an older brother in a lot of ways. He had died a few years before my dad, and he was a doctor himself. He was an emergency room doctor, and he had pancreatic cancer, and basically he declined chemo because he was like, "I've seen so many people go through this. It's a terrible end to their life." Um, and he was like, "It's pancreatic cancer. I know what my chances are." They're basically nil. Um, And I think at the stage that it was when they discovered it. So he didn't really do any treatment. um, And he still lasted like, I think, nine months. No, a year after that uh, from after diagnosis. But it was actually until the very, very end. He was pretty comfortable and like he was able to eat and like fairly active and play with his grandkids and like do all the things that, you know, he probably wanted to do. Whereas, I mean, chemo wrecks people and and obviously there's times you definitely want to do chemo because you have a chance but i think in his specific case he was like i'm not like i'm not i don't have any illusions of like what this can this can do so i'm just going to make the most of the time i have left i think my dad probably actually was a little bit inspired by that of like Mm -hmm. okay that's like once he accepted this is what's happening he was like okay that's definitely the way that i would want to go too is like Yeah. yeah How often do you guys think about your own like mortality beyond the like mechanics of where or how, but just the concept of? Pre my dad, never uh, really. I didn't think about it very much. And post, basically daily. Daily is about the same for me. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like having kids has made me think about it more. Yeah. It's interesting. The one thread that kept coming to mind as you were talking, Neil, is like so many of the things that you're that you were describing about like having your dad at home and like that versus being in a hospital and all those things. It's like the exact same stuff that we've talked about. And we've like talked with our friends about birth. Mm. Yep. Oh, wow. Like, like even the same phrasing and like the same way the hospital treats you and like the stress of the experience and the bright lights and like all this stuff. Like it, it it's very interesting that like these two most important physical experiences of your life 
like probably shouldn't be in a hospital unless they like absolutely have to be. Yeah. Like if you have the option. Is it fair to summarize? Because I've not experienced what either of you are describing. Would it be fair to summarize as like the entire hospital is a place for emergencies and generally these things are not emergencies? I mean, that, that's where we landed with birth. Yeah. Just because if you're, if you are healthy and you have no complications, it's like the number one thing that a woman's body has been like optimized to do for <laughs> like all of evolution. And so, and like, there's so much fear mongering around it in the U S especially that it just like, yeah, and it, a lot of it goes back to the same hospital, like incentives, like doctor incentives, like all that stuff. And like, like we, we, we try like not to be too preachy about it just because like both of the experiences were like so just incredible, like amazing, like wonderful birth experiences. And it's like sad that so many people don't get that. And it's so often because of like hospital shit. It's also how it's depicted in the media. Like I've never seen a movie yeah, or dude. TV show birth that wasn't so like bad. the woman screaming like at the top of her lungs. Yeah. yeah. Which I didn't know until I think we talked about it that you were like, yeah, that's not actually like what happens every time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. It's like, it's so bad in the US. Like I, I don't mention this stat on the podcast before because it just like makes me sad every time I think about it. Like the C-section rate in the US in a hospital is like 35%. I saw it's higher in Europe, actually, even than the U.S. Like in Italy, I think is the highest. If you go to a if hospital. you go to a hospital, but it's not everybody going to a hospital. Yeah, it's much more common to do home births and birthing center type births. Yeah, so like it, there, if you're going to a hospital, it's because you need. Oh help. yeah, there's an upstream variable that's affecting mm -hmm. that. Yeah, yeah. No, I just that that resonated while you were talking about it. It's interesting how these the like, parallel. What what yeah. well, and it, well and and these were both traditionally very sacred experiences. Yep. Right. Like probably two of the most sacred experiences that you'd ever yeah. participate in. Right. Yeah, like it's basically someone's birth that, and someone's it's death. The birth, wedding, and death basically are like the three yeah. big ones. <laughs> basically, you wouldn't do your wedding in a hospital, yeah. would you? <laughs> Dude, give the U.S. healthcare system a chance, and they will, they will grab it. They'll find it. Yeah. Okay, we're gonna change circumcision to a wedding thing. And then... Aren't there some states that require you to prove you're not related? Like, I think there's like some. I think I've heard of that before. Hold on, I'm gonna. I know Iceland requires you to do that, <laughs> or like encourages you to do it because they've got. It's just such a homogenous population. Yeah. I don't know if there's states. I'm going to Google it. There might be states that make you prove you're not a cousin. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't get married in a hospital. Yeah. <laughs> you, you wouldn't download a car. <laughs> yeah, but you're right. Those are like birth and like entering your life that way too is probably a traumatic experience in much yeah. the same way. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you, we need to bring back the religious traditions. Like the, the sacred birthing and dying rituals sound way better. Yeah, and it's I'll, I'll take literally any religion's <laughs> birth and death rituals over being in a hospital. I mean, and and I guess like the the flip side to it is I am thankful that like the hospital exists for the people. Like, let's say you do have a birth that is complicated. It's actually great yeah, that yeah. like those women now don't totally. have to die during childbirth or those babies don't have to die. Like, that's a, Kids don't have to die. that is a great yeah. thing. But does everybody necessarily need that is like the question. It's like, should that be the default yeah. in general? Yeah. And it's like same thing with dying in a hospital. 
same thing with dying in a hospital. Like there's definitely people yeah. who die in a hospital and they had a chance to be saved. And that's like a good thing that the hospital yeah. was trying to save them. But then there's a lot of cases where if you, if they can get you to opt into doing an intervention, even my dad's surgery was not really needed. It was like something that we kind of got talked into by the neurosurgeon. who was like, Oh, there's a chance it's something else. So like, let's, you know, it, let's just do the surgery. You'll be, yeah. you'll be better in three days. No big deal to, you know, tap into someone's spine who has a neurological disorder, like not a, not a trivial thing. If you have a neurological disorder, <laughs> it's like the thing that the variable that gotta, wasn't yeah. looked at was like, yes, for a healthy person, they can heal and be home in three days. And yeah, then there's a physical therapy process you have to go through. And that's fine if that is what you have. But if you don't have that and you have ALS and you go through the surgery, what is going to be the downstream effect of that? Like that was the part that wasn't really looked at because also there's no incentive to doing that. Like a neurosurgery is like a six figure billing for sure. And, and mm, to be fair yeah. to the neurosurgeon, he's not a neurologist. He's like, I'm a neurosurgeon. This is what I do. Like, you know, to someone with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Hammer it's the nail. same, yep. <laughs> it's the same, uh, same problem there. So it's like the specialization has kind of also made it where you're just looking at your one area and being like, Oh yeah, I can do that surgery. Like, no problem. Like, you know, that's so, so it's just kind of like the incentives are skewed that way. What do you guys think about it's something that I have not seen any of uh, the traditions comment on with regards to death and like specifically consciousness or the soul, whatever you want to call it, is uh, neurodegenerative disease like Alzheimer's. Mm. Where the, because over here it's like the body leaves and the mind remains is like a consistent theme of the book. But Alzheimer's seems to invert that where the body remains, but the mind is either left or uh, in a severely compromised state. Have you guys ever seen spiritual tradition comment on that? No, but I can imagine how they might. I mean, I, I, I might argue that like, if we were going to comment on it from this tradition, it might be something to the effect of like the, just like the connection has gotten corrupted hmm. by something deteriorating in the brain. So it's like the, the, the link to the, you know, primordial consciousness or whatever has just been obstructed. Hmm. Right. And that's kind of like a, a, a sickness, like anything else. Right. It's that, that's what comes to mind at least. Yeah. But you're right. I haven't, I haven't heard much talk about it. Yeah. I haven't either. I had a, uh, like a great uncle basically who had Alzheimer's, but he was just built like a linebacker. So he, his body hung on for a very long time. Anyway, that, that like image comes to mind when I think about this. I'm like, how would something like this apply to him? And I kind of draw a blank. Uh, cause I don't know if this is a, the right way to word it, but I just didn't feel like he was there. I don't think that's maybe, yeah. maybe not a controversial thing to say. I don't know. But, uh, yeah. Alzheimer's is weird. I mean, my, my grandmother had dementia, like some degree of Alzheimer's towards the end of her life. And it, the thing that really illuminated for me is how much we're all probably running on scripts that we don't realize mm. because it, it's like, like she would say something and then, you know, she would forget that she said it and she'd say it again a few minutes later. And, you know, it was, it was, it was sad, obviously. Cause it was like hard to, you know, keep a conversation going, but it was also this very like, like so much of what we're doing is probably reacting to stuff in our environment, like constantly. And if you just remove the like check of whether we've already had that reaction, 
right? Like we would kind of do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And it kind of like, like that, that to me was what was one of the scary things with Alzheimer's was like how it makes you question your own consciousness, right? Like, yeah, like how much am I actually like thinking and driving what my body is doing? Yeah, like my my grandfather uh, towards he had other stuff, but like he died of dementia. Well, he didn't die of dementia, but he had dementia when he died. And I didn't go at like when the dementia had hit, but my mom had visited and like one of the things that she would describe was it was like he was almost trapped in the past. Like he was in a past version of himself mm-hmm. to the point yeah. where like, so my mom has two younger sisters and so my dad wasn't there on that trip, but my mom's middle sister was on the, was there. And so was her husband. And my grandfather clearly remembered my dad because he kept asking my mom where he is or what, what what's mm-hmm. he doing. And, but he didn't recognize my mom's sister's husband. And he kept saying, like, who is that? Who is that? Like, who is that? And he just didn't know. Like, it was like in his mind, he was in some period of time after my mom had gotten married, but before he had gotten married or before my mom's sister had gotten married um, to to him. And she remembered, like, me and I think my brother, but not my mom's sister's kids because they were born later than us. And so it was like... And then he kept reverting even beyond that. Like, my mom said there were times that he seemed like he was in like his twenties or like thirties again and was like talking about like school or like hanging out with his friends mm. and stuff. And like, it was just, it was almost like he was like aging backwards mentally. I've heard that from others as well who've had family members go through it. Yeah. Um, it's very, cause it must live That's somewhere so inside strange. you because you'll have, yeah. like, it's very, it is hard for me to vividly conjure up some memories from earlier periods of my life. But then I'll dream them very vividly. Mm. And obviously, like, the dream is probably some fictionalization of it. But I don't know. I'm sure you guys have had, like, you're running late for the test. It's like, dude, I haven't taken a test in a decade, right? (laughs) uh, (laughs) So, yeah, it's somewhere in you. Uh, One thing we didn't talk about was later in the book around death and rebirth, where it talks about how you, like, face in great detail your entire life. Mm. Yeah. In some ways, it's, it's very similar like to like that. the Christianity idea of you will be judged. Exactly. Yeah. It's like the same yeah. idea in some ways, although less, less of a test, I guess. Well, it sounds like, uh, where was it? I, I wrote it down because it was the Lord of death and then there was a judgment. Yeah. Um, I wrote the page. Yeah, there's some. Yeah. There's still a judging phase. Yeah. There's still a judging, but. Yeah, page 296. Yeah. I, yeah. I liked how you talked about how many traditions talk about a very similar experience, right? Like they describe a similar path to the afterlife. So it's, it's in, in to the theme of like shared consciousness we were talking about earlier. It's like, there does seem to be some universal truth to some of these things. I'm always curious, like where the or, like origins of some of this stuff comes from. If you ask somebody in that tradition, like, yeah. Is it that somebody remembered the different bardos is it you know was i don't know was it transmitted in a vision like it's always interesting it's a good question like where that knowledge came from yeah yeah i don't know i want to read more because in because in like the uh, abrahamic religions you have more of like a messiah who transmits like (laughs) god's word so it's a little bit more like I don't know the pathway, at least whether you, you believe it or not, the pathway is like clear. It's like this person transmitted that knowledge to humans, but 
yeah, I'm curious in this right. case. I, I actually really liked that he called out that like core difference between Buddhism and a lot of other religions that the Buddha is just a normal human. Mm. Like Siddhartha wasn't like a God or anything special. He was just a human who worked at attaining enlightenment and found it and then tried to share how he found and what he found with other people. And by following him, other people have found the same state. Like that, that resonated very strongly with me because it's like, okay, like this is actually something that can, you know, like you don't, you're not appealing to a deity. You're appealing to the best of humanity. Mm. And there's something about that that I found very like, yeah, resonant. Yeah. To that, but to your point, Neil, yeah, it's like, okay, well, where did this come from then? <laughs> where did some of these things come from? Yeah. I'm sure that's out there. I'm just curious what it is. Yeah. 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 I think they actually, if I recall, somewhere around the first third of the book, they describe, I was going to use the word souls, but that's not how they described it. But like people who are about to be born and they take a drink from a river that like wipes their memory of the barda before life. And then they're born. Yeah. And this guy did not take a drink from the river and was born and was able to relate what the barda was like to the living. I would imagine, I mean, A, that's in the book as one of the ways this knowledge gets yeah. transmitted. I would imagine there are similar things as well. Lots and lots of mushrooms. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I got to get back before our nanny signs off for the day. Any last right. closing thoughts? Check out this book. book. Yeah, good book. Yeah, I yeah. love this book. This is my favorite book that I've read in a long time. It's fantastic. Good find. And yeah, we're gonna we're gonna start trying to get these up on the YouTubes, maybe. <laughs> yeah. And what else? Yeah, I don't know. Leave a review. Leave a review. Tell a friend. Tell a friend. Sign Tell up for our things. Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> the long extinct. Patreon. <laughs> a long instinct Patreon. Yeah, sign up for our OnlyFans. Yeah. That's where we are now. Uh, <laughs> All right. Israel, a history in two weeks. Two weeks? All right. Oh, my God. Seriously? Nice. Mine hasn't even been delivered yet. Dude, okay. lots what? of reading ahead for you. I am 30%. I, I, think, it, I, think, it's, I think it's sold out oh. with everything that was going oh, on, so it got yeah. me super backordered. Hmm. Let's see where it is. I, I, I debated giving in to my physical only rule, but I gave in. Uh, I got the Kindle version. <laughs> it's a big book. Yeah, I didn't want to walk I, or travel around yeah. with it. <laughs> I think it's eight hundred and fifty-eight oh. pages. I've seen the picture. Man, I've the seen your pictures, Matt, of like you're walking around. Guys, with... it got it got it got delivered today. Ooh. That's spooky. Spooky. Collective consciousness. Amazon's okay. part of it. <laughs> yeah, wa- walking around with my like piles. Of I books. know. <laughs> Yeah, just a wheelbarrow of books. <laughs> I have a problem. You posted a picture of your, book, of your uh, backpack once, and it was like yeah. four massive like books <laughs> and a couple like little little guys. And I was like, "Wow, he's basically rucking." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right. On that note, so yes, is Israel history in two weeks, and uh, we'll see you guys then. See you then, you guys then.